This morning's scripture reading is from Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, chapter 2, verses 8 to 22. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not on your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we could walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows in a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being brought together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. I've had the privilege in the past of preaching through this amazing section of Paul's letter to the Church of Ephesus. And I preached through in the past in large part because this scripture is the foundation upon which the community aspect of our church's vision is built. Now, I, I put this behind us here. And again, this is based on Ephesians 2, 8 through 22. It says, as a response to Jesus' grace... And this is part of our vision. As a response to Jesus' grace, we are committed at sunrise to being a church who relates through faith in Jesus as the strongest glue that bonds unlikely friends. So, what I did is I looked back through a few notes of mine from last time I preached on Ephesians 2. And and in the margin of those notes, I just jotted down, man, reading this passage was a punch to the gut. Meaning, it was convicting. It was convicting because I had fallen short of this picture of Christian community, this picture of the church. At least in my own relationships, Christ still wasn't the strongest bond. And I'm happy to say today, totally by the grace, the unmerited favor of God, that the Lord impressed upon me the opposite effect this time. Not a punch to the gut, but joy. And I want to tell you why. Uh, I've come back from a week of experiencing Jesus as the peace between unlikely friends. Myself and the rest of the Sunrise 10 arrived home Friday from Tegucigalpa, Honduras for an amazing missions experience. And I'm just so proud of our team. I mean, they did a fabulous job. So many people stepped up as the Lord used them mightily. You'll hear more about that next week. We'll share some testimonies. And I had pain. When I came home, uh, pain in my sciatic nerve from labor and a poor mattress. Pretty sad in my mid-30s, got sciatic nerve problems. <laughs> it's an issue. <laughs> but I also noticed, man, I got pain in my cheeks 
in my uh, abdominal muscles. Why is this? I realized it was from an unusual exercise, and that is laughter. Lots and lots of laughter. Now, I, if you know me, you know I love to laugh. I love it. But I do not know if I've ever laughed that hard over a sustained period of time. And I'm sorry to some of you because I know some of you equate missions with suffering. <laughs> You'll be pleased to hear. <laughs> You'll be pleased to hear. There was that. All right, so for those of you who sponsored us, prayed for us, your labor is well worth it, you got your money's worth. <laughs> but as you'll see in some of these pictures here behind me, there was quite a bit of laughter as well. In fact, one of the workers there, one of the, the, the missions, missionary guys, uh, Raul, said to me, man, I, I've never seen a group laugh so much and so hard. And that was even though we had three factors. We had three factors working against our laughter. First of all, uh, circumstances of suffering. We ran out of water where we were staying. We lost electricity, uh, experienced injuries. We had to respond to a death scare and the heat stroke of some kid we were working with. Some frightening stuff. Another factor working against our laughter was the looming prospect of alienation. Uh, Joe Ditton, the head missionary of Tree of Life Ministries there, Asked Sean Glidden, uh, who, was, who did a fabulous job really leading most of our trip. He said, hey man, uh, you must know these folks, right? You, how well do you know these folks? And Sean said, you know, he went down the list and he realized, man, I don't know really anyone on this trip. Not very well anyway. Now, in large part as their pastor, I was the only one who sort of knew people and their stories, with even a couple exceptions. But most people didn't know each other. And finally, we were a third factor. So we were unlikely friends. There was not more than two of us from the same community group or, or heck, the same country, I don't think. That's, well, that's a large part. We would have had three Americans, but Ray, like most people from his state, considers Texas its own country. <laughs> uh, that's right. Go ahead. Yeah, you can clap on that. Um, you know, Americans, a lot of us are arrogant. And then there's Texans. Uh, but, but there we were, laughing together as we ate, as we played, and as we served. Not as we drank, as we caroused, and as we cut down, as is per usual. Now, this kind of laughter was a pure and holy mirth. Why? Simply because each of us, both alone and together, both in serving and in quiet, looked to Jesus. And in fairness, admittedly, mission trips sort of help force you to do this. Uh, you're put in situations that compel a reliance upon him. But having said this, this can equally happen in churches and families, and communities, and workplaces as people live, work, and grow together. When having experienced and worked through conflict at some level, and that's what we're kind of finishing up on here today, is peacemaking. Having experienced and worked through conflict at some level, Jesus Christ can be who bonds us, who unites us, who keeps the peace, because he is our peace. And so in a nutshell this morning, 
Remember this, if you remember nothing else, or sermon in a nutshell. I'm a big fan of it this morning. <laughs> there is no in-between when Jesus gets in-between. There is no in-between when Jesus gets in-between. What I like about this so much is it's got a double meaning. Two meanings for the price of one. Uh, the first is that nothing gets in between you and I when Jesus gets between us. Nothing can get in between us when Jesus is already between us. But also, the second meaning is that if we want Jesus to be our glue, we can't stay in between about him. We can't stay neutral toward him. All right, so you see the double meaning. You're gonna, we're going to explain this more because the sermon is barely based on these two meanings here. So the firstly, nothing gets in between you and I when Jesus gets between us. Nothing gets between you and I when Jesus gets between us because Jesus is our peace. How then do we keep Jesus wedged between us so that nothing else gets between us? Well, Paul tells us right here in Ephesians 2. First of all, recall what you were, then practice what you are, and finally jump in to what you are becoming. First of all, recall what you were. Look at me again here in verses 11 through 13 of Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, at one time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So some explanatory notes here first. Uh, you Gentiles in the flesh, Paul says. Well, Paul is writing to a church comprised of mostly non-Jewish people called Gentiles. With some Jewish Christians by, Jewish by ethnicity, Jewish Christians mixed in. Now before Jesus came on the scene, if a Gentile wanted to become part of God's people, it was a process it offer a very specific sacrifice, basically take a purification bath, and then, oh yes, get circumcised as an adult to cap it all off. And that is why Gentiles are called the uncircumcised. And let's face it, because people didn't volunteer easily when that was one of the requirements. See, Judaism religion with God, the God we know, before Jesus was bent towards exclusion. Yes, there are the occasional Rahabs, the occasional Ruths, but largely we have a people set apart, the Bible says. That's people largely set apart, not inclusive of others. And this was threatening to happen in the early churches also. But Paul reminds the churches this, because People would say, no, we're excluded because of how we follow God, because how we obey him. But Paul reminds them, it is by grace you have been saved. It is this free, unmerited gift in which you can save 
through faith, even that faith is not of your own doing, but a gift from God. Even the ability to trust Jesus, the one thing you think you can give to God is itself originally a gift from God. So it means it's all gift. You cannot take credit. There is no separating oneself into a superior category. More on that in a moment. But because of that, now we, and most of us here aren't Jewish by ethnicity, we have hope. We are with hope, including we are included in the commonwealth of blessing and promises that belong to God's people because of the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We're told in verse 13, God stooped low to rescue us when otherwise there was no hope. There's a great little detail in Matthew's gospel uh, you may have missed, even if you've read through the gospels before. Well after Matthew's given up, it's been, it's been a while, well after he's given up his former day job of betraying and cheating his own people as a tax collector, as an enemy to his own people, He's been following Jesus. And he starts to list off the other apostles, the best friends of Jesus. And listen to how he lists them. He says it this way, Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 2. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. And Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Notice, with you'll see repeats of some names. And where there's re repetition, there'll be an explanatory note, like he is the son of Zebedee. Or he is the brother of James. But there is no other Matthew. And yet, yet, Matthew describes himself as a tax collector. He mentions his former life. Uh, a few scholars who think he is inserting just a little reminder, both to himself and to his audience, of how far the Lord stooped to save him. And I agree with him. The idea is Matthew's giving himself a reminder of who he was before Jesus saved him. And then that he too, he too, even though an apostle, is still now not a follower of Jesus because he's good, but because of Jesus' grace. Friends, it is still good today to remind ourselves of who we were. For me, when Jesus found me and rescued me, I was Ryan the short-tempered, self-indulgent pot smoker. <laughs> That's who I was. Who I was when I was once far off, but now I've been brought near by the blood sacrifice of Jesus. Friends, my question is, who were you? Now, you, got, you got a bulletin when you came in. You can grab a pen nearby, one of our chair pockets. Make a note. Take a minute. Write it down. Who were you when Jesus found you? When he called you to trust in him? 
Oh, yeah, don't just stare at me. <laughs> Seriously, write it down. Okay, I admit. I'll move on. As you're writing that down, one way we can remind ourselves today of who we were is by making sure to share our stories as we ask others to share theirs with us. Share stories of how we started to trust our life to Christ. Testimonies. Not only does Jesus use our stories to encourage others, but, but they're a constant reminder to us of who we were without the unmerited favor, the undeserved low stooping, the grace of Jesus. Just constant reminders of who we were without Jesus. And what this does, it makes us, when we remember this, when we recall this, it makes us more patient with others. It makes us more easily forgiving of other people. It makes us more easily inclusive of people not like us or who bother us or who are less than faithful like we used to be without the grace of Jesus in our life. So it's crucial to keep Jesus in between in relationships. Okay, but secondly here, what we see in Ephesians 2 is practice what you are, which is one new man. Read with me in verses 14 through 18. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, and so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body, notice the emphasis on one here, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And Jesus came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Hostility. We see that mentioned twice here. Yeah, hostility is created in the church usually when one person feels another isn't stepping up, isn't being faithful, isn't carrying their weight, and they start to hold that against the other person. And then likewise, this hostility is heightened when that other person being looked, is being looked down upon as a second-class Christian starts to feel looked down upon, starts to feel excluded as a second-class citizen. But such mutual hostility is overcome because Christ has abolished the law of commandments expressed through these ordinances. See, what it, what's happening here is the Jews have God's law, a holy good law, which included getting circumcised and going through a number of rituals. The law was like a dividing wall between them and everything else. All that's unholy, but also other people. Because whomever didn't follow God's law was under a curse of judgment. But Jesus, through his death on a cross, while he didn't abolish the whole law, rather, he abolished its curse. He abolished the law as the standard by which people were judged, which is good news both for the Jew and the Gentile, both for those 
who were religious and near God and thought they could get by with their goodness and for those who were far off, nowhere near God, know that they're lost, know they're without hope in the world, the Gentile. And this new standard now, the new standard is trust in Jesus who came to preach peace to those who were far off and those who were near. There's, in other words, no longer a divide between the doers and the donters. So practice what you are. You are one new man. And just two suggestions on how to do this. Quick ones. I encourage you, go to the cross daily so you can participate where you don't feel included. What I mean by this is go to the cross to recall what Jesus has done for you so you remember who you are. That his work is finished. And so it's also finished that you are a son of God, that you are a daughter of God, a daughter of the king, a son of the king, royalty, heirs. That work is finished. Go to the cross to receive forgiveness. Because there are some of you here this morning, I know there are some of you here who are afraid to relate with others in the church, in this church, because you don't feel like you are good enough, you're spiritual enough, or you serve enough. And, and you need to understand, those of you who are serving, who are feel included, you need to know that those people who at first got involved sort of awkwardly and kind of wondered about them and they slowly got involved, then later on you thought, hey, oh man, I'm so glad that this person did get involved. I've gotten to know them over time. At first I wondered, at first they didn't seem to fit. You've got to understand that those people, that person, stepped out in faith. It was equally awkward for them. But they went to the cross. They remembered that Jesus' work was finished for them. And this is who they are in Christ. They are part of the body. And so they stepped out in faith. Equally, on the other side, intentionally invite someone who has been less than faithful. Intentionally invite someone who you feel like, you know, I wouldn't normally invite this person. They seem they're less than faithful. They're less than reliable. They're less than involved. Invite them to church, to coffee, to community group. And so by doing so, you practice what you are. One new man killing the hostility that would otherwise separate. Okay, a third thing. We see our third way Paul gives us to keep Jesus in between so that nothing else gets in between us. And that is to jump into what you are becoming. Which is a building and dwelling place for God. Read with me here in verses 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Uh, the first couple of days of our missions trip were especially humbling for me. I couldn't communicate 
very well <laughs> with the people there because I knew poco espanol. And the only other way I could help was through construction, which it's pretty well documented if you've listened to me enough here and you've been part of the church well enough. At this point, uh, I am no Bob Vila. Uh, I know about construction primarily uh, through driving down Seven Mile Beach and looking at new high-rises. So that's it. And we, we were starting to build the very first building of the orphanage of Casa Arbol de La Vida, the Tree of Life home. First building. And there was a point in the second day, it was clear I was going to get left behind in this construction because I didn't know how to mix concrete and keep it pliable in a 1970s style. And this was like ancient, ancient kind of construction. We had no modern equipment. So I asked someone, I forgot if it was Sean or Ray, you know, if they needed help. And then I asked them how to do it because I am clueless. If you head up a ministry here at Sunrise, please stand up. Anyone here? I'll just name all people. Lindsay Pistorius, Wes Heiston, uh, Simon, Holly, Lisa, uh, Werner, uh, Terry Howard, Pastor Rich, all our community group leaders. Go ahead and stand up. These are the persons who help us lead. I want to encourage you. Ask one of them how you can jump in to be part of the building for God. And if you don't know, by the way, if you don't know what you're doing, ask them how to do it. Because each of these leaders are pretty thorough and they care deeply. But they're also busy and every once in a while and every once in a blue moon, even they might accept your offer to serve, but just forget to train you. And... (laughs) They might not show you how to do it initially. And I want to encourage you, ask them. You'll be happy to ask Wes, ask Terry, ask Pastor Rich. If you don't know how to, how to do something with audiovisual, if you don't know how to work with students at Georgetown Priory, if you don't know how to work with children and what you're doing when you get there to set up in the children's ministry, ask Pastor Rich. All right, you guys can sit down now. That's right. We appreciate your service big time. But but ask them. I know it's humbling. I know. I didn't like standing in front of half a dozen men and say, hey guys, I do not know how to mix this concrete and keep it blind. I don't know how to do it. It's humbling. So jump into what you are becoming. Take that step. Ask people how to do it. Now this is the practical part of getting Jesus wedged between us. That's the practical part, but there's also a priority part of this. If we want Jesus to stay in between our relationships, we personally can't stay in between. We can't stay neutral about Jesus. He must become our holy obsession, our numero uno. That's the second part this morning. Uh, Jesus put this very simply if you could put this in one verse, when he said in Luke chapter 11, verse 23, he said, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me actually scatters. In other words, 
If you're neutral about Jesus, if, if you're you're riding in the cruise control of spirituality, like like I often am prone to do, he says you are against him. In other words, we're continually on mission. In fact, I remember saying uh, when we were leaving Tegucigalpa and we're getting to going walking to this plane, I said to uh, Francois Bazinghut here. And he knew he didn't know what the heck I was talking about. It was, it was kind of vague, the sort of out there philosophical kind of comment. I said, "Hey, man, on to our next mission." And because he didn't know what I was talking about, he said, uh, "Oh yeah, you mean like next year we go back to Honduras?" I was like, "Well, actually, I mean the next thing Jesus called me to. Like for me, my next mission is loving my family. I'm going to be home. My kids are going to be there. They want to see me. I want to love my family well. It's the next mission. It doesn't stop." There's no moment we get to ride the cruise control of spirituality. And that includes our relationships. The glue who is Jesus must hold us together more tightly, more tightly than you both having the same age children, than you both having the same hobbies or interests, the same season of life, the same profession, and especially the same nationality. I love the way the great Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it in his book, Life Together, which we have on our back table there in the, in the lobby. He said the more genuine and deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. That dismisses once and for all every clamorous desire for something more. Isn't that true about Christianity in the church? We have these relationships and they're good, but then we want something more. Jesus plus something else would be nice. Anyway, back to the quote. He says, One who wants more than what Christ has established does not want Christian brotherhood. Now, let me just add to what Bonhoeffer says that such a person also, I believe, is settling for a far inferior and less satisfying relationship. As we grow together, the more Jesus becomes central, becomes our passion, becomes our pursuit. And when that happens, he stays the glue in our relationship. He bonds us all the closer. We have to get serious about Jesus. While I was preparing for Easter weekend, I was... You know, a few weeks back, I was reading through Matthew's account of Jesus' final Passover meal and passion in Matthew chapters about 26 through 28. And what struck me in this account in Matthew's gospel is the extremes. You couldn't stay neutral about Jesus. Uh, there was extreme language, you'll read extreme language and the extreme personal responses towards Jesus. Just look at this with me if you would. First, extreme language about Jesus. Listen to some of the words used toward or about or in action of Jesus here. Betrayed. Fled. Blasphemy. Spit. Struck. Slapped. Destroy. His blood be on us and on our children. I mean, who says that violently anymore? I'm mocked, derided, 
And then in Matthew 28, after the resurrection, run and tell and worship. Extremes. But there's also extreme personal responses to Jesus. Let's think about these personal responses to Jesus. You have a woman for, who gives up everything. All of her earnings, all of her inheritance for Jesus. We have disciples who've been following Jesus all this time, but suddenly fall away. We have chief priests and a religious council who plan and persuade others to destroy Jesus. We have Pilate's wife who shows up out of nowhere to say, hey, have nothing to do with Jesus. I have this, this horrendous dream, this torturous dream. I don't have anything to do with this man. And then she disappears in the story. Then we have Judas, who first betrays Jesus, but then, going to the other pole, hangs himself in regret to that action. And then we have, we have Peter, who swings from being willing to die with Jesus, to denying he even knows the guy, to three persons, including two teenage girls. You get lots of responses to Jesus, but they're all at the extreme. Why? Because of what Jesus said about himself and who he was. And it is. Ironically, every single one of these persons who responded so strongly against Jesus was religious. Even more ironically, they viewed Jesus as getting between them and their God. He was the block. He was the frustration. He got in between them and their God, frustrated their purposes. Exactly. You either run from that or it becomes your salvation. There is no in-between. Even more ironically, they view Jesus as getting between them and their God. Exactly. But you either run from that or it becomes your salvation. There is no in between. When Jesus gets in between you and your God, you either respond by running and telling and worshiping or with hatred, with frustration, with hard-heartedness. Jesus can not only bond us vertically to the Father, but horizontally with unlikely friends and even former enemies. Let me just close with this story. Uh, John Oxenham was a notable English writer who loved Jesus and he loved missions. Um, in 1908, he wrote a hymn called, In Christ There Is No East or West. Oxenham, while notable, his 15 minutes of real fame came in an unusual way when his song was employed to the glory of God in an unexpected setting. In the closing days of World War II, uh, two ships were anchored together 
but parallel to each other. One was carrying Japanese aliens, the other American soldiers, bitter enemies, especially at the end of the war when fighting was heightened between those two sides. Uh, both sets of nationalities were waiting to be repatriated to their countries. For an entire day, they line the respective rails of their boats glaring at one another. When suddenly someone began to sing this hymn, In Christ there is no east or west. Then another on the opposing ship began to join in. And soon, bellowed an extraordinary chorus of former enemies united through Christ, erupting in praise to God, singing, In Christ there is no east or west, in him no north and south, but one great fellowship of love throughout the whole wide earth. Join hands then, brothers of the faith, whatever your race may be, Whoever serves my father as a son is surely kin to me. Friends, whatever differences, there is no in-between when Jesus gets in-between. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for its guidance. We are grateful for its richness in teaching us how to make peace between you, between me, between people in the church, at our workplace, relationships with the opposite gender. We remember, Lord, the steps to peace to make every attempt to glorify God when there's conflict first. Secondly, get the log out of our own eye. We remember to gently restore and finally, to go and be reconciled. But once that work has been accomplished, not only through practicing it wisely, but through the power of the cross and your Holy Spirit, help us keep the peace. Please help us keep Jesus in between relationships, wedged in between. Remind us, Lord, to recall where we were and how far you brought us. Help us even share with others what we were. To remember how low you stooped for us and to show the same sort of patience towards others. Um, also help us to practice what we are. To make attempts to reach across and to invite people we might have otherwise considered unfaithful, unreliable, and on the other end, to remember what we are, to step out into fellowship, into service, where we might feel uncomfortable at first. And also, Father, help us remember and jump into what we are becoming, to get our hands dirty and serve, to be part of this building, this dwelling place for God. We have an opportunity to be that at Sunrise Community Church. Thank you, Lord. Help us step out. And if we don't know how to do it, help us be humble and ask how. And all of these things help us just keep Jesus as number one, pursuing him. And we fail, bringing us back to him who is our peace. 
We ask this all in his name. Amen.